I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. It's so great to be back. Sun is shining, thank God, even though winter is on its way. And of course, we know that because the month of Kislev is coming up this Friday. So just some interesting things about this month. We know that every single month has um, a certain energy that we can tap into if we understand a lot of different things about it, um, it gives us the opportunity to really make the most out of this month. So, one second. Oh, here it is. Okay, so first of all, it's no coincidence that Hanukkah comes out in the darkest month of the year. And what we're going to talk about today is our task as a people and each one of us individually is to find the light in the darkness. This is the challenge of Kislev. So Kislev is called the month of trust because in dark times, the only thing that gets us through is Amuna. And we know Amuna means belief, right? But we've talked about in other classes that believing in God is one thing, trusting in God is a different thing. You know, who did I just hear that said, you know, you might believe that the air, the pilot can fly the plane, getting into the plane and actually trusting that he's going to get you from one place to the next is a different level. And that's what Emuna, believing is one thing, but trusting is putting that belief into practice, right? We can say, I believe in God all we want, but the question is, how much do we trust him? So trust is something that's needed in dark times. And Emuna, like we said, is a skill. The word uh, Emuna comes from the word Omen, which is a craftsman. And it connotes the idea of Muna being a skill. It's something that you constantly have to develop. We all go through periods of doubts. We all go through periods where we say, where is God? Why isn't he helping me? You know, where has he gone? Is he really, is it real? And this is the time when we have to flex our spiritual muscles and dig deeper to find Hashem even in the darkness. And that's what the challenge of this month is and what Kislev is about. And the fact that we have the holiday of Hanukkah, the holiday of lights is there as a obvious hint that this is the work of this month. Jewish people are always moving from the darkness to the light. We always begin our day at nighttime and we go towards the light as opposed to the secular calendar, which begins morning in the morning with the light and goes towards the darkness. The world is self-created in a place of darkness, in a place of chaos, tohu vavohu, and it traveled towards the light. Okay, 
So we're always traveling towards the light. Now we know that Jewish survival is compared to the cycle of the moon. And it's, um, the truth is, is that just like the moon, which almost disappears in the blackness of the sky and then reappears again to its full brightness, this is the cycle of the Jewish people. Just when it looks like we're going to disappear, we come back even brighter. You know, we know this even from the Holocaust, right? The darkest period in Jewish history, one of the darkest. Certainly up there with, you know, with uh, Sheba Mitzrayim, with being enslaved in Egypt. And yet so many people say, from the Holocaust, we got the state of Israel. There are more people learning Torah today. The level of Torah scholarship and knowledge is higher than it's ever been in the history of the world. And so from this darkness came great light. Every person begins in, dark, in the darkness of the womb, right? And yet we're told the Midrash teaches us that we have a light over our head. And there's an angel there that's teaching us the entire Torah. We forget it, of course, when we come into the world. And this is a world that is a mixture of darkness and light. And the challenge for human beings is to extract the light from the darkness. And this is what Jews are. You know, that's our mission in this world. To extract the light from the darkness. I wanted to give this class in the merit of a Rufur Shalema. Sorry, I didn't mention it. For Rifka Gittel Bas Yehudas. Sarah Leah. Sarah Bracha Bas Naomi Leah. Um, Esther Malka Bas Kayla Bracha. Is that right, Penny? And it, they should all have a Rufur Shalema and everybody else who needs. Okay. Um, So this light that we're talking about, another place where we find this light is at the beginning of creation. We know that there was a special light that was created at the beginning of the world. And this light was so powerful and so brilliant that God takes this light, which existed for only the first 36 hours of the day of, of, of creation. And he hides away this light. Because he says this light is going to be misused by the wicked of the world. And it says that this light is hidden in the Torah and in Olam Haba. And it's this light that emerges in the month of Kislev, in the holiday of Hanukkah, when we light our 36 candles. No coincidence that this light that was hidden away after the 36 hours of creation is the same light we're told that is the light that we bring back in those little lights of the menorah. Okay, so let's go back to this, the name of the month of Kislev and some of the ways that we understand it. So first of all, we said in our last class on Heshvan, which was the month before Kislev, that every month corresponds to a tribe. 
right? There's 12 months in the year and there are 12 tribes. Another way that we know about the month is what was going on in the Torah, what events in the Torah were happening during this month. We also know about the month because of the elements, since we're talking about elements, right? The element of this month is, guess what? Fire, right? We said Cheshvan was water, which is when the flood took place. So the horoscopic, if that's a word, element for this month is fire, which we have the holiday of Hanukkah. And of course, fire lights up the night. And you need the fire, you need the passion, you need the desire to grow and develop yourself, especially when you're feeling oppressed by the darkness all around you. Okay, there's a Hebrew letter that corresponds to the month, which we're not going to get, no, we are going to get into that. And there's a human attribute. And of course, whatever holidays appear in the month also tell you about the character and the energy of that month. So what I want to do today is look at all of these things and try to find a common thread between all of these different ways that we can understand the month. How does it relate to us and how can we use this energy to grow ourselves? The other thing we want to know, of course, is the astrological sign of the month is Sagittarius and the um, the symbol for that is a bow, right? A bow and arrow, which is a weapon. The rainbow is also part of it, but we're going to focus here on the bow and arrow. Okay, first of all, what does the name Kislev mean? Just to review again, the months of the year in the Torah do not have names. Whenever a month is referred to in the Torah, it's always the second month, ninth month, the third month. There were no names to the months originally, but when the Jews were exiled to Bavel, they somehow, and this is a little complicated, so I'm not going to go into it, but basically they, they got names for the months there, and they brought these back with, to them with Israel when we came back to the land, okay? But these names are very deep and very, you know, we can say they were um, based on Ruach HaKodesh, on the divine inspiration that great people got in terms of how they named the months. We're going to see this in the month of Kislev. Okay, so where does the word Kislev actually appear in the holy writings, in Tanakh? So the place that we find it is actually in the book of Job, in Eov. We see a word there that's the most similar to the word Kislev. And it says there, um, oh, I didn't write down the Hebrew. Where did I write it? Hold on. Okay, it says in chapter 31, verse 24, I'll just say it in English. I put my hope in my gold and to my and. And to jewelry, I said, my confidence. And the word my confidence says, kislay, kislay. It's missing the that. We're going to understand why. So basically, the word kislay means confidence. Okay, I put my, my trust in 
my confidence in my money and in my jewelry and my gold and my silver. That's basically what the Pasuk in Eov says. So to extrapolate from that, we're saying that the word key slave has something to do with a sense of identity, a sense of self, that this is where I put my trust. Now, together with this, we have the symbol of the bow. And a bow also is a symbol of moving forward and of confidence, right? When you shoot a bow, it's going ahead of you. And it's a certain sign of strength, of confidence, of moving forward. Okay, the next thing we have is the tribe of Binyamin. So this is the tribe that corresponds to this month. And Binyamin, who was Yaakov's youngest son, is actually written about very little in the actual Torah. We don't know a lot about him. We don't hear a lot about him. He's not one of the key figures in the stories of the, of the uh, Shvatim. <clears throat> He's not given as much attention as the other brothers are. However, there's a hint about him, about this tribe, in terms of the bravery and courage of the tribe of Binyamin. It says, the Medrash tells us that when the sea split at Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, the first tribe to risk their lives was the tribe of Binyamin. So we're gaining a bit of a picture of what this month is about. Confidence, moving forward, bravery, strength. And we know that the holiday in this month, Hanukkah, of course, is the story of bravery and courage. The Maccabees, they were warriors. So now if we go even deeper into these words, kislev, or we're going to just look at the word kisli, okay, which is, again, the word kislev without that at the end, we get from Eov, from the, from the Pasuk and Eov. The mystics point out that if you dissect the word kislev and you break it up, so the word kis means covered, right? We know a kis is a pocket in Hebrew, or a purse, a bag of some kind. So kis means covered over. And lave, lamed vet, is the number 36. So we're back to the number 36 again. The 36 candles of the menorah, the 36 hours in which this hidden light, this light which was revealed became hidden. Okay, so Lamed Vav is the 36 numerical value. So what does this mean? Key slave, literally it means the covered over 36. Kis means to cover, lave is 36. That somehow this 36 has been covered. Now, just so I'm sure you all know this, but if we take away the shamas, of the lights of Hanukkah, if you begin lighting the Hanukkah menorah on the first night and go to the eighth night, you will have lit, lit 36 candles. No coincidence, right? You're lighting these 36 candles. So the name Key Slave is hinting to the lights of the menorah. 
But the question is, why are they called the hidden lights? What's significant about the number 36? So I've already mentioned why the number 36 is significant, right, to some degree. But here's something I never knew, and I find it very fascinating. So it says, before Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, ate from the tree, right? We know that they're in Gan Eden. They're in the Garden of Eden. And they're living this incredibly blissful existence. And obviously that light is available to them. And it says about Adam that he was able to see from one end of the world to the other. And this has something to do with that light that was so brilliant. But obviously we're not talking about a physical light. We're talking about a level of God consciousness that was available to man at the beginning of the world that since that time we've completely lost. Now, obviously, the Jewish people have had glimpses of it, right? For sure at Mount Sinai, right? When we were being given the Torah, there was actually an opening at that time for us to go back to that state of the Garden of Eden. But we all know the story how we blew it, right? Moshe went up the mountain, he came back. By the time he came back, we were busy dancing around a golden calf. So that opening that was there for us to return to that state of you know, higher consciousness on a completely different level than we could ever imagine that man was on, the original man, was closed again, okay? But basically, back to Adam and Chava, they were on the highest level of God consciousness than any other human being could have. But once they eat from the tree of the garden, we know, game's over, right? They've lost that consciousness and... They're going to become much less capable of that relationship that they formerly had with God now in this new state. Now they're going to have to work. As we know, this is our mission in life. Light and darkness is now going to become confused. It's going to become mixed together. And now our job is going to be to somehow be able to extract the light from the darkness and get back to the garden, right? And get the whole world back with us. So listen to this. So Adam and Chava were created towards the second half of the sixth day. Okay, so the sixth day had 24 hours in it. The first half of the day, the first 12 hours, animals were created. And Adam and Chava were created on the second half of those 12 hours. Now, they existed in the garden for only 12 hours on that first day. They sinned on Friday, Yom Shishi, but they weren't evicted from the garden until after Shabbat. Now, this I didn't know. So God basically, even though, right, they're created on Friday, they're created, let's say, 12 o'clock or whatever, halfway through the day. And God, you know, on that very same day that they were created, they blow it. They, 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 the, the only commandment that God gives them, right? Don't eat from the tree. Chava, then Adam, and the world comes down. But God says to them, listen, your punishment is that you're going to have to leave the garden, but I'm not making you leave until after Shabbat. Now, why? It says because Shabbos has the power to forgive all sins. And the energy of forgiveness penetrates the world every Shabbat. So, of course, I had a question, which I asked my husband. I said, wait a second. 
if they were forgiven on the Shabbos that they got to stay there, then why did they have to leave, right? Why did they have to leave? So I answered my own question because even when you sin and do tshuva, there's still an idea that you have to have some kind of kapara, right? That you have to have some kind of, we don't want to call it a punishment, but something has to happen to kind of clean your slate completely, okay? You know, I remember when I went to university, I had a friend who was Sephardic from Morocco and we were in uh, a class together. And I never knew what she was saying, but, you know, every so often she'd say, kapara, kapara, kapara. And I'd say, what, what, what? And, you know, she wasn't particularly observant or, or religious, but Sephardim have it in them that when something happens to them that, you know, doesn't go well. I mean, it could be stubbing your toe, okay? It could be, you know, whatever. Like it says in the Talmud that, you know, if you bang your baby finger, it's a form of suffering. It's God saying, here, I'm giving you this instead of something worse. Okay, because you did something not so good today. And here's a little kapara for you so I can clean your slate. So, you know, she was always saying kapara, kapara. I didn't know what she was talking about. But, you know, some Jews have this idea embedded in their psyche. It doesn't matter how observant they are, what they're doing, what they're eating, what they're, you know, where they're going. But this is the way they think. And it's very interesting because I don't know if Ashkenazim have it as strongly. You know, we, we went through the Enlightenment. We went through Western Europe, which was saying, if I can't see God under a microscope, he doesn't exist. But the Sephardim were saved from that. They came from very religious countries, you know, Muslim countries where there was no question. You know, everybody around them was davening five times a day. Everybody understood there's a God. You had to be an idiot to not believe that there was a God, right? You had to be blind, really, in the Sephardic world. And so they have a lot of things more naturally than we do um, as Ashkenazim, because we went through, as I said, a lot of the Western Enlightenment philosophy. You know, Nietzsche said God is dead. And of course, God said Nietzsche is dead. But, you know, get it? Nietzsche is dead. God, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So back to Adam and Chav in the garden. So there's this energy of forgiveness, but of course they still got kicked out after the garden. So listen to this. They had the 12 hours from the time they sinned when they were created. And then you have to add the 24 hours of Shabbos, which God allowed them to stay in the garden. And of course we get the number 36 again. Because 36 represents that initial, initial God consciousness that they had until they left the garden. So God gave it, it he extended it to, you know, throughout Shabbos, even though they had already sinned and they deserved to, so to speak, fall. But it continued for 36 hours. And here again, we have the 36 lights of the menorah, right? Light represents the soul and enlightenment. I had a here, but you know, it's no coincidence that the word nishama, soul, are the same letters as the word shimona, which is the number eight, right? We have the eight nights of Hanukkah where we light 36 candles. And so to speak, we have access during the 
days of Hanukkah, during the nights of Hanukkah, to that hidden light that's hidden all year long, but at this time of year is revealed and we can access it. Okay. By the way, just, I don't know if we're going to get into it in the future, but women have an extra added mitzvah to sit by the lights for a half an hour to not do any work. You better have gotten your luck because made before you lit the candles because everybody wants them, right? But, you know, I always say, I'm busy. I'm doing my half hour now. Everybody can wait, right? And you're actually supposed to sit and gaze at the lights because there's an idea that the lights make a person wise. And also because there was a great woman, Yehudis, Yehudit, in the story of Hanukkah, who was very much a part of saving the Jewish people during this time. Another woman who got a great Greek general drunk and cut off his head. She was a tough lady, right? So because of her, women very much figure in this holiday as we do in all of them. Um, and so we have this little extra thing that we do. We have a half an hour where we're supposed to sit by the lights. Okay. So the Talmud and Sages teach a very fascinating concept. Again, with this number 36, you probably know this idea, but we know that hidden in every generation are 36 righteous tzaddikim. And these 36 are called the 36 hidden tzaddikim. Nobody knows who they are, right? But in every generation, there's 36 people in the world who, so to speak, are keeping the world going because of their righteousness. Now, they don't necessarily make the front page, and we don't necessarily know who these 36 are. They could be a world-famous spiritual leader, but probably not. They're probably a very simple person, somebody who no one notices. Maybe it's somebody who's meticulous in their kindness, or they give charity that no one knows about. We don't know their identity. But the 36 hidden Siddiquim represent that higher consciousness, that righteousness and purity of the 36 candles that when we light them, we are privy to catching a glimpse of that higher consciousness that Adam and Chava enjoyed before they were evicted from the garden. <clears throat> now, we're not Sadiqim. We know from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're all considered to be Benonim. What is Benonim? Right? Again, we have Sadiqim, righteous people. We have Rashaim, evil people. Right? We say that at the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, those people are signed immediately into the book of life and book of death. But then we have what's called most people, which are Benoni, who struggle between the light and the darkness, right? Who, you know, do good, do bad. We walk, we try to see our way through the darkness of the forest, but we stumble and we fall. And so we're Benoni, we're always struggling between good and bad. So what does all of what we've been talking about have to do with me? 
The idea here, and this is what we've been teaching in our class on the uh, elements, four elements of an empowered life, is that everything in the external world is existing within us as well. So this, these 36 lights that we're talking about are teaching us that we have this hidden spark, this hidden righteousness, key slave, right? The covered over 36, and that we too can have access to this higher consciousness. In other words, no matter how you think you have messed up, there's a part of you that's completely untouchable. There's a part of you that's pure, right? We say every morning, Elokai, Nishama Shinatatabi, Tahorahi. My God, the soul that you put inside me is completely pure. It can't be touched, right? And even though it can be covered over by layers and layers, right, of opaque, you know, obstacles or sin or things that we've done wrong, that pintle yid, as we call it, right, that little um, fire that's always burning inside every Jew is totally untouchable. And even somebody, it says that you think might be the biggest Russia, you know, just beyond help so crooked, so that, you know, God never gives up on anybody. And even the great human beings, right? The tzaddikim can see that pintle yid in every Jew and knows that it's there, even if they don't. And there's never, it's never too dark. And we never give up hope for anybody, including ourselves. So again, the lights of the menorah are lit in the darkest time of the year. The days are shorter and darker, and we see how the seasons of the year play a major role in our spiritual focus as well, right? We have a lot of holidays in the spring and the summer. We have a lot of holidays when the weather is beautiful, right? Even Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, the days are just beginning to change, but it's still a beautiful time of year. But we're in a time now where the world gets darker and colder, and that um, creates a difficulty spiritually as well. You know, we have more difficulty accessing the clarity, the inspiration at certain times of the year. And, you know, even in the, in, in the world out there, we all know, we've all heard of the winter blues, right? I don't know about you, but I went out and got that Costco lamp one year. You know, I, I don't think it works, right? But, you know, seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. As a matter of fact, it says that the mortality rate goes up during this time of year. It's a very difficult time for people spiritually and emotionally. You know, and if you're going to suffer from depression or despair or any of the negatives, any of the earthy, right? Element, laziness, sluggishness. I don't want to do it. I'm not in the mood. I can't get to it. I, who cares? Whatever. It's going to be during the dark times of the year, right? I'll do it later. It'll wait. Okay. So what? It's breaking. I'll fix it. Maybe I won't. Okay. Now I can't fix it. Whatever it is, right? It's this time of year. It, you might find yourself in a time of struggle. Now, the secular calendar, interestingly, is full of holidays at this time of year, as we all know, right? 
we've got all kinds of holidays. We've got Halloween and we've got the other one that's coming up. And it's interesting to note that many of the pagan holidays, because these holidays are all rooted in paganism, were also created around this time of year. Now, you know, not to go into it, but there's a lot of interesting stuff on Xmas and Halloween through how to understand it Jewishly. Rabbi Kellerman gives an incredible class on on how the holidays develop and where they came from. But generally speaking, Christianity, we know, was a religion that attracted the pagans, right? Even the Rambam says that Christianity was a good thing for people who weren't Jewish, even though, of course, we know that it was Jews that developed Christianity and the first Christians were Jews. But it was a good thing for non-Jews because the non-Jews of the world at that time were pagans and they were doing horrific things, terrible things. So Christianity was considered a step up for them. And a lot of the symbols of Christianity are rooted in paganism because the early Christians wanted to attract the pagans to join this religious movement. So they adopted and incorporated certain pagan themes into the holiday to attract followers. I know that the tree, for example, in the holiday coming up has all kinds of pagan roots to it, okay? And I'm sure interwoven into the holiday of Halloween, et cetera, there's all kinds of pagan rituals and rites that of course we don't, they, we don't necessarily do them anymore, but they're steeped in paganism. So the truth is, is even out there in the secular world, it's a time of spiritual darkness, okay? So we light the menorah in our windows, right? We know there's a halacha that you're supposed to light the menorah in the window. And the idea is, is because you have a mitzvah of pirsume nisa, of advertising, of publicizing the miracle. You know, and of course, the irony is not lost on any of us, right? Here we are lighting these tiny little lights. And I know I I grew up in St. Catharines, probably the only Jewish house on the street without any lights at all. You know, everybody else had spotlights. And I always thought, oh, our house would look so nice with spotlights. I wish we could just put on some spotlights one, one year, you know? Like, you know, and here we are lighting these pathetic little candles, you know, but I always say it's like that book, Horton, Here's a Who, you know, that book, Dr. Seuss, are we allowed to read that one anymore? Yeah. You know, the, that little speck of dust that's going, we are here, we are here, we are here. And everybody's going, what are you listening to? You're Meshuggana. There's nobody there. You know, poor, poor Horton, right? And, and it's like, we like these little lights and it's like the Jewish people saying, we are here, we are here, we are here, right? And all around us, there's all this glitz, you know, and there's all this artificial light that's like, whoa, you know, bright and, 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 and blinding almost. And here we are with our little tiny candles, right? And we had to light at an early time, just when it's turning dark, because in the olden days, especially, that's when people were walk, running and walking home because they didn't have electric light. So you had to get home before dark or you weren't getting home. 
So that's why we're so makhid, we're so stringent about the time to light the Hanukkah candles. Because the idea is, one of the biggest mitzvahs of lighting them is you're supposed to be publicizing the miracle. Well, if nobody's on the street, you haven't done anything. You haven't done that. So you want to light them when people are still. Now, today, of course, it's irrelevant because people are out all the time. But still, we do it the way it's always been done, meaning the most, the best time to make it public. So that's what we're saying. We're saying we're here, we're here, we're here, but we're telling ourselves we are here. I am here. I have a flame inside of me that's lit. And my job in this world is to find the light in the darkness when it's difficult, when it's hard. So we're saying that don't worry. We light the menorah to say, don't worry, even in the dark, cold, even when you're feeling spiritually empty. Know that there's a hidden level of consciousness in you and an ashama that is untouchable, that is so pure. I promise you, says the menorah, you are holy, pure, and beautiful. The covered over 36 are the lights that remind us of the hidden sadiq that is within each one of us, right? Binyamin did not sin in his lifetime, it says in the Talmud. We said Binyamin is the tribe that corresponds to this month of Kislev. He was unique. He was more hidden than any of the other tribes. And hiddenness allows a person to stay clean from sin, right? We had a whole course on Sneut, on covering the ego, on being invisible in a good way, right? Even we just had a couple of weeks ago in the Parsha, right? The angels come to Abraham and they say, where is your wife, Sarah? And Abraham answers, He's, she's in the tent. And Rashi says, there's Sanuahi. She's at Sanit, she's at Snu'ah. She doesn't have to be out here with us. She's happy in the tent. Okay, again, you know, in our secular world that we live in, come on, what's your problem? Get out here, you know, come and gab with the men. What's, you know, what, is, what are you hiding in there? What is this, a patriarchal religion? You know, women have no rights. What's going on there? You know, she wanted to be there. She was happy to be there. She understood her role and her place. She wasn't a wimp, right? God tells Abraham later in the same Parsha, listen to your wife, Sarah. She's got more Ruach HaKodesh than you do. She's on a higher level than you, okay? So we have to be careful not to impose our Western enlightened ideas, right? On the stories of the Torah, we have to really dig and understand them. Okay, but anyways, this idea of hiddenness, this was Binyamin. And the idea here is there is a part of sin, there is a, sorry, there is a part of us that sin can never touch. The soul, Hashem, that you put inside of me is pure. It can't be touched. <clears throat> Another thing, what happened in this month, historically, um, this was the month when the construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan in the desert, which was a forerunner to our temple, right? To our two temples that were built in Yerushalayim or the first temple, this was a forerunner to that. Before we got into the land of Israel, we had this portable shul 
right? Everybody knows that we traveled with, that the lucho, the tablets were inside of, right? We took them to Eretz Yisrael when we got there. And eventually we built a temple, but this Kislev was when the tabernacle, the Mishkan was completed. And interestingly, the holiday of Hanukkah is the only holiday that is celebrating events that took place in the temple, right? The whole story of Hanukkah is how the Greeks came into our temple and they defiled it. And the first thing they did was get rid of the lights of the menorah, which they understood to be these spiritual lights it, and spirituality and the super rational and the metaphysical was anathema to the Greek way of thinking. Logic reigned supreme. You could have all kinds of ideas about the world. They, they had all kinds of different types of, if you want, religions in the Greeks, the Greek way. But Judaism was something that they couldn't handle because it was talking about this higher consciousness this God consciousness, this Shimona, this level of Shimona eight, the number eight we say is above nature, above what we can see and feel and hear with our eyes and ears and hands. And this was something that the Greeks knew if we, if we don't get rid of this extra spirituality, we'll never be able to conquer this people they will end up becoming our conquerors. As of course, Mark Twain said in his famous poem, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all of the great empires in the world have been, have turned to dust and ashes. They are no more. And yet the Jewish people with their little tiny candles that say, we are here, we are here, continue to march through history surviving all the greatest empires that ever, ever existed. Because we go above the number seven. We hang on to the number eight, which is that God consciousness, that light, that hidden light, that one day the whole world is going to enjoy again. Right? But every year at Hanukkah time, we have access to being able to touch it to touch that level, okay? So ladies, don't forget to spend your extra time there. Just looking at the candles, talking to Hashem. One sec, we're gonna get to that now. So the temple, by the way, was the place where heaven met earth. The reason why the temple is where it is is because that's the place we say that is the most powerful, intense place in the universe, where God basically's presence is felt that he, so to speak, comes down to earth and heaven and earth are attached there. This is the place of the eye of the universe and the highest consciousness is, where it is what a person can access there, right? This is where the Garden of Eden, I assume, was. This is where, um, you know, Avraham took Yitzchak on the Akeda to sacrifice him. And many other stories in Midrashim talk about, this is where Yaakov had his dream of the ladder. Okay. This is where heaven and earth, like that ladder in Yaakov's dream, are connected. There's a temple within each one of us that cannot be touched, right? What's that line? 
build me a temple. Oh, whatever, I can't remember right now. And the grammar's wrong because Hashem is saying, build the temple inside of you, right? Sorry, my mind isn't working. What's the letter for this month? The letter for this month is the letter Samach. Samach is a circle, right? It's closed on all sides. It's the idea of protection. It's the idea of that pintala yid inside of you. That light that can't be touched. It's also the idea of somech noflim or fecholim, that Hashem supports those who are fallen, right? All we have to do is cry out to him. You know, did it make any sense that this little band of Torah scholars who probably never picked up a weapon in their life, you know, got together and said, let's go fight the Greek empire? Like, is that insane? I mean, are you, you know, is this insanity? But they had, they understood that Hashem. if you're for Hashem, we can fight this fight because Hashem is going to fight it for us, right? They have their horses and they have their chariots, but we call out in the name of, of God. We have the power of speech, right? Hakol kol Yaakov, the voice is the voice of Yaakov, Yitzchak says in this week's Parsha. And of course, it's alluding to the idea that the strength of the Jewish people is prayer. And this is where we come back to the symbol of the bow and the arrow, okay? In Torah and mystical writings, the bow and the arrow always represent prayer, conversation with God, right? In this week's Parsha, or was it last week's Parsha? I think it was last week's Parsha, right? In last week's Parsha, we have Yitzchak who's praying who's having lasuach b'sadeh. He's instituting the mincha prayer, the afternoon prayer, because in this last week's parsha, we see him having a conversation with God in the middle of the field, right? Just before he meets his wife, Rivka. He's involved in this prayer. So what is it about the bow and arrow that represents prayer? So one idea is that the sword, a different weapon, is the text of the sitter right? The actual words of the sitter. And those words are supposed to cut down like a sword, the blockage that's in our hearts and our mouths, so to speak, to be able to relate to God, to be able to talk to God. You know, that's the sword. But the bow and the arrow are the words that come from the heart, right? When you go off of the page and you talk to God in your own language. You have a conversation like Yitzchak did, like Yitzchak teaches us. Prayer is conversation, right? And the more you practice conversing with this invisible God, you know, as, 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 as the saying goes, I went to the Kotel and I felt like I was talking to a wall, you know? I mean, there are people who unfortunately, right, like, you know, they go all the way to Israel. I'm going to go to the Wailing Wall. I'm going to the Western Wall. It's going to be an experience. I'm going to be, I'm going to see holiness. Something's going to happen to me, right? And of course, if you read that book, A Tap on the Shoulder by, about Mayor Schuster, the great tzaddik, who used to tap people on the shoulder at the wall and he would go every single day, and he would see people having incredible emotional experiences, right? 
in the 70s and the 80s. He brought so many Jewish men and women back to Torah because that's what he did all day. It was his, what did they call it? He patrolled that area and he would see one after the other emotionally breaking down, crying, having awesome experiences there. But for many people, it's just like talking to a wall. You know, I don't feel anything. It's not happening for me. The point is, is sometimes for prayer, it's a bow and an arrow. We have to speak from our own heart, get ourselves going by using our own words. The other idea is this, that the closer you pull the bow, is it the bow? Sorry, the arrow, right? The arrow, the closer it comes to your heart, when you let that arrow go, the farther it flies. So that's a symbol of prayer. The more authentic and genuine and real it is, it's coming from your heart. You know, you can read one verse in the Torah on Shabbos in the prayer service. I'm sorry. And if it speaks to you and you want to go over it again and again, like a mantra, that's, that's great. Nobody cares if you caught up to page 72 where everybody else is, okay? Nobody cares. If you're having an experience or you're being able to get yourself into it because it triggers something in your mind, in your heart, go for it. You know, I remember Robinson Weinberg, may she have a refuel also, Dean of us, Esther. You know, when we would talk about Sneas, she would say, who says God's paying attention to all those men on the bima? You know, shaking each other's hands and, and opening and closing. And all the women are going, why can't I do that? I want to do that, right? Second class citizen. She said, who says God's watching them? Maybe he's watching the little old lady in the back who's crying with her sitter, right? And her pages of her sitter are soaking wet because she's busy you know, crying for the Jewish people and crying that, you know, blessings should come into her family and into her life. Who says God's watching them and he's not focused on her, right? It's not always the fanfare and the, you know, <clears throat> the hullabaloo, whatever it is, it's the still quiet voice or the sincerity of the person who's hidden, who doesn't need everybody to notice. If anything, it stares, as we say, it gets in the way of them being able to accomplish, right? That place of hiddenness. So just to, to finish up, the closer you hold the arrow to your heart, the farther it's going to fly. When it's hard to pray, use your own language. Speak from the heart. Even just yearning for Hashem, yearning for that closeness, yearning for that connection is prayer itself you know i just heard recently which made me a little happier um that even if you can't get to eretz yisrael you know for whatever reasons in this gilgul and this reincarnation you don't make it there in terms of living there you know maybe it's a dream that you have or you had I just read, which made me feel better because I'm still hoping to get there. Please, Hashem. But just yearning to want to live there, just yearning to want to be there. To Hashem, that's like living there. That's like being there. 
So yearning is a big part of a person's spiritual growth and development. And in the darkness of the night in Kislev, when it's time, when it, when, when it can be a, such a spiritual struggle and where we can feel this spiritual emptiness and this lack of clarity and this heaviness from the darkness, that's the time when we can start yearning. You know, yearning for the light, yearning for that higher consciousness that makes us happy, that makes us feel connected. So during the dark times, we have to work extra hard to look for the clarity. It's a covered 36 that we have to uncover during this time. Peace lave, covered lave, covered 36, right? You could even say the word lave is heart, right? It's as if our hearts are covered, right? And we have to wake, wake it up, keep it, keep it warm because it's dark and it's cold. And the holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot, you know, they're, they're waning. They're not sustaining us the way they were the first few weeks after they were over, right? At this time, we have to tell ourselves that we can tap into this energy and that if we make the effort to speak to Hashem, to God, we can pierce the heavens with our prayer and our holy words because we have that strength, Kol Kol Yaakov, each one of us. When a Jew prays, when a Jew talks to his father, her father in heaven, you know, Hashem is listening. He wants to hear from us. He loves us more than a parent could ever love a child. More than a spouse could ever love the other. But we have to believe that and know it and recognize that the darkness is an opportunity for us to bring in the light. The true light, not the glitzy, artificial, baloney lights, right? Which, whatever, they need it. They, they needed it then. Whether they need it anymore, you know, or most of them have realized it's just a party, of course. Most people who have these holidays, any of them, they have no idea of the pagan uh, foundations of it. They, many of them don't believe in any of it. But you know what? Human beings need a party in the middle of the night when it's dark. And that's why there's so many holidays that include lights at this time of year, especially if you can imagine before electricity, there was nothing. So, you know, you probably saved your money all year to have lots of lights at this time of year. Okay, ladies, wonderful to learn with you. Have a great day and a great week. And a good Shabbos. And Mirza Hashem will see you next week, God willing. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.